Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham went, set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Adam's wife, uh, Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. May God bless the reading of his word. What do you suppose is the central problem of Scripture? What's the central problem that the Bible is trying to solve? I suppose that most of us in our tradition would say that what the Bible is really trying to solve, the central issue that it's addressing, is the issue of sin. And the problem it's, going to, it's trying to solve is how to get us saved, how to get us released from judgment. Because we talk a lot about that in our tradition. You know, sin and judgment and salvation through faith in Christ. So it's easy to assume, that we hear about it the most, that this is the central problem that Scripture is trying to solve. And it is a problem that Scripture is trying to solve, but it's not the central problem. It's actually a derivative problem. It's a second-tier problem that Scripture is trying to solve. So what's the central problem that Scripture is trying to solve if it's not salvation through faith in Christ? Now, for those of you who weren't here last week, we're beginning a new sermon series. And what we're going to do is survey the whole of the Old Testament, taking, well, probably 
I don't know, six to eight months. And so we're going to go big chunk by big chunk. And Genesis 1 to 3 sets out the fundamental problem. Genesis 1 to 11, particularly 1 to 3, sets out the fundamental problem that God is trying to solve. And it involves sin, but it's not as narrow as sin. It involves salvation, but it's not as narrow as salvation. And that's really the only reason Genesis 1 to 11 is in Scripture, because it sets out what the problem is. And then the whole rest of the Old Testament and New addresses the problem. So what's the central problem of the Scripture? You see what happened in Genesis 1. Is that God created the world and mankind. And he established you know, his idyllic environment. So man had relationships with God. Man had a, a, an environment that was supportive and fruitful and positive. Man had good relationships. Man and, women were, man and woman were made for each other and meshed harmoniously. And then sin entered the picture. And man's relationship with God was broken. Man's work was damaged. Man's relationship with woman was harmed. And man's relationship with his environment took a downturn. So everything good that God had made was damaged in Genesis 3. And this is the fundamental problem. Not so much the damage that's been done, but that God has apparently lost his godhood. I mean, God created this world. And now something's come in and disrupted God's... God's marked by benevolence and he's marked by power. And now suddenly, God's world is no longer good. And God no longer seems to be in control of his world. So apparently, to all appearances, not in reality, but to all appearances, God is no longer in control and his world is no longer good. And this is the fundamental problem. That God no longer appears to be God in the world that he has made. The only world we know seems to be out of control. And as our world is out of control, and we read it in the newspaper every week, right? And we say, if God's in control and if God is good, how can his world be like this? Or we hear it in the announcement about the sex industry. If God is in control and if God is benevolent, how can women, first of all, be abused as children? And then how can women be kind of forced into this industry? How can this industry, how can the state allow such an industry to exist? How can patrons patronize such an industry? Uh, We see it on the cosmic level. How can ISIS succeed? We see it on the daily level. How can people be trapped into a life within the sex industry? This world no longer appears to be God's. Work is frustrating. Husbands and wives have as much conflict as they have love and sometimes more. Uh, Man struggles with the environment. Man destroys the environment. You know, we finally get the ozone layer to recover a bit. And global warming, it seems out of control. So our environment suffers. Our relationships with our, our closest, most intimate relationships suffer. Our work suffers. And even when we come to faith and we have a brilliantly uh, emotional relationship with God, that suffers because we can't sustain it. You know, we have high points and low points. This world does not seem to be the world the way God made it. It's certainly not. 
But it, this world suggests or it implies, it, it, it causes us to think that God's lost control of his world. And that's the fundamental problem. Now, our salvation and our sin and our forgiveness and our salvation is part of it. But it's, a, it's a, important, but it's a small piece. The, the big piece is, how can God be God if his world is out of control? And so you notice, just thinking ahead, scrolling ahead a couple of minutes here, you remember when Jesus came, what was his central message? The, the, the thing he talked about the most, how did he package his message? It wasn't the central message, was not believe in me and you'll be saved. That was a piece of the message. But what was the central theme of Jesus' teaching? Uh, we mistranslate it a little bit. We call it the kingdom of God. But what, in actually what it means is the reign of God is at hand. Jesus, when he returns, comes back to say, God is taking charge of his world, and he's going to remake it. And it will one day again be what it was. That's the central message of Jesus, and it includes the forgiveness of our sin. But it's far bigger than that. God's going to remake our relationship Jesus is going to remake our relationship with God. He's going to remake our relationship with our environment. He's going to remake our intimate relationships. He's going to remake work and our relationship with work. And we're in the midst of that process. That's the central point. Immediately, as Genesis 1 to 3 sets that up as the problem, here's the problem that, that has to be solved. Immediately then, we see Genesis turns in a new direction. Take a look at Genesis chapter 12. And this is a very odd direction that we miss because we're reading this Bible through contemporary American eyes, not through ancient Canaanite eyes. Here's the problem. The world is out of control. Work is not what it's supposed to be. Your families aren't what they're supposed to be. A man's relationship with his interaction with his environment is not supposed to be what it's supposed to be. Man's relationship with God is not what it's supposed to be. And here's God's solution. The Lord said to Abraham, This is the oddest thing when it was written in, in Canaanite context. Now, if any of you or your parents were ever part of a traditional Chinese religion, you can pick this oddity up better than the rest of us. You know, so many of us who were raised in the... I was not, but people who were... I was raised in a, in a purportedly Christian country, whatever. Or if you were raised in the church... We get the idea that Yahweh is in control of all things, that Jehovah is the great God who made all things, heaven and earth. But it's very odd from a Canaanite perspective. God made the heavens and earth, but he's no longer in control of heavens and earth. What's he in control of? The Lord said to Abraham, How do you know that an entrepreneur is successful? You know, what makes, what's the sign that somebody like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Warren Buffett, what's the sign of their success? The amount of stuff they can control. What's the sign of success for a politician? Barack Obama or Elizabeth Warren or Deval Patrick. What's the, the sign of success for a politician is the amount of stuff they control. Uh, what's the sign of success for a church or a pastor? Bill Hybels or Rick Warren, Francis Chan? 
It's the amount of stuff they control. And in traditional Asian religions and in Canaanite religion, what's the sign of a powerful God? The amount of stuff he controls. And the God of Genesis 1 was powerful. Creator of heaven and earth. And the reason Genesis 1 makes that point is because it's go- that point is going to disappear for a long time. Genesis 1 to 11, Genesis 1 to 3 is anticipating Genesis 12. Because in Genesis 12, God has one worshiper. He's not a God of heaven and earth. He's not a God of a country or a territory or even yet a God of a clan. You couldn't really call him a God. You know, in Chinese, traditional Chinese religion, which some people still practice today, gods come in different sizes, different levels of power. And you've got a family god for your own family. You've got a clan deity, often the same as your family god is a clan deity. He looks after all your relatives. You may or may not know all the, all the relatives. Some people have tablets to keep track. Well, well, You have gods of the geographical region that you're living in. There are gods, higher level gods. And the bigger a territory that God covers, the more powerful that God is. Now, he doesn't care about you. He's too powerful to care about you. He's sovereign, but he's not benevolent. So you go to the little gods. You go to your ancestors who died and became spirits. Or you go to your household deities. Because they're not powerful, but they care about you. They're benevolent, but they're not sovereign. So you go to your little gods first. And if you can't get what you want, then you go to a bigger god. And if that god doesn't give what you want, you go to another temple and find a more powerful god. And you keep working your way up to more, more powerful gods until you get a god who can do for you what you're looking for. But the higher you go, the less likely they're to act on your behalf because they don't really care about you. So when Scripture says, uh, the Lord said to Abraham, when this was originally written in a Canaanite context, this is a very curious solution. Uh, the, the, the problem is cosmic. The problem is worldwide. And God says to Abraham, and this is why Genesis 1 to 11 has to come first. Because if Genesis began with, and God said to Abraham, then this is not the God, capital G. This may not even be a God, small g. This is just kind of some family spirit. Just Abraham. So Genesis 1 to 11 says, no, no, no. This is the God of the whole universe as a prequel. To set the context. And now we're going to learn about this God because he's unlike any other God that ever existed at that time. Because this God of the universe is just, he, he's starting out with one, one man, one small family. And then we'll hear what he has to say to that family, one that man today. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at this point, name changed later on, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you, verse 2, into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see what God is saying here? Is one day, he promises Abraham, that God is going to be sovereign over heavens and earth again, over the whole world again. One day he's going to be there. And so, in response, verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and his nephew Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, 
and the people they had acquired in Iran, the slaves. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Notice that God makes three promises to Abram. If you want to understand the Old Testament, this is the single most important passage to start with. All the rest of the Old Testament unfolds from these few verses. Because God makes three promises to Abraham. Notice the first. Uh, well, they come in different orders at different places. But notice 12, 1 to 3, three promises. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. One promise is land. I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. Another problem is descendants. Another promise is descendants. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see the third promise? Land, descendants, and that Abram will be a blessing to all the peoples on the earth. What God is doing is making three promises to Abraham. They come out here in chapter 12. Then in chapter 15, he makes the same promises again. In chapter 17, he makes the same promises again. Always the same three promises. We're going to change the order here because I'll explain why in a moment. But here's the three promises. God promises Abram descendants. He promises Abram land. And he promises Abram international preeminence. Through Abraham... God will reach the world. You see how God started? He started with creation. Now you see what God's doing? He's focusing in on one. But he hasn't forgotten about creation. He hasn't forgotten about, about the world. Because he says he's going to bless Abram and Abram's descendants. And through Abram, he's going to bless the world. Three promises. Descendants, land, and world blessing. World preeminence. Now why is this the most important passage to understand in the Old Testament? And why does the Old Testament substance begin here? You know, 1 to 11 is prequel. Why is this the real beginning of the narrative? God promises descendants. When does he fulfill that promise? Abraham has one son, two sons, a few sons. Abraham's son has sons. And his son has sons. By the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis... Abraham has 70 descendants. The whole book of Genesis, four generations, and all he's managed to do is get from one to 70. Then 400 years, we hear nothing. And then Exodus chapter 1 begins. And we hear that God has fulfilled the promise of descendants by Exodus chapter 1. And the land of Egypt is so full of Israelites that the Pharaoh panics and starts a program of genocide. God took 400 and, I don't know, maybe 500 years to fulfill that first promise. Then the second promise, land. You see what happens when God takes them out of Egypt in the Exodus, and the book of Exodus, and the book of Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, and Judges, and up until easily the time of David. All of that is about the second promise. God is giving his people land. And then the nations. What happens with the nations? When does God fulfill that third promise? Now, some of you who know the Bible background well, you may remember the incident in Solomon's reign, King Solomon, when the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon looking for advice. 
You see? Suddenly, Israel and Solomon are so famous that foreign rulers are coming for advice. And it looks like the third promise is about to be fulfilled, but what happens? Solomon marries a lot of women from other nations to make treaties. And then he begins to worship, show respect to those women and their gods, and by worshiping their gods. And then Israel gets taken into exile. And instead of Israel blessing the nations, the nations curse Israel. Israel gets taken into nations, split up and taken north and south. And Israel is destroyed. But after 70 years, God brings Israel back to the land and we start again. There's not that many of them. Tens of thousands. They don't have much, they don't have freedom. They don't, they're in on their land, but they don't own their land. And, and the promise to land, land is lost. And the curse, they haven't blessed the nations, they've been cursed by the nations. It's Matthew 28. Begins that third promise. Go to all the nations. The book of Acts. It took them a while to figure it out, but from Acts 15 they got the idea. They start going into nations. And ever since then, this is what the church has been doing. Not gathering here to find a warm place, but leaving from here to go to the nations. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, provide the outline for the entire history of Scripture, the entire history of salvation, all the way up until Revelation 22 and the end of time. This is why it's such an important passage. Now let's take a look from this passage specifically at, at two points. First, let's see what we can learn here about the work of God, what God is doing. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so what happens? So Abraham takes his immediate family and his nephew Lot, whose father had died, Abraham's brother had died, and they all went out and they set out for the land that God had told them, sent them to. And they took all their belongings, all their family members, and they landed in the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abraham traveled, verse 6, throughout the whole land of Canaan as far as Shechem. But at that time, there were Canaanites in the land. So God's promised him this land but other people are there. And God's promised to bless the nations through him, but he's going to a land where other people are, and they're not going to give up their land happily. So there's going to be war. But Abraham had the promises of God, so he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. The first theme of this account is that God has made these promises. And we see the work of God progress. God promised Abraham descendants, land, and a blessing he'd be a blessing to the nations. He says, go, leave here and go. And so what do we see? Abraham goes. And that's the first thing we see throughout Genesis. God's blessings progress. But what's the second thing we see here? Take a look at verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. God had promised Abraham land. But what good is this land? There's famine in the land. So Abraham has to leave the land. Abraham goes down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know that what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister. 
so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Never mind what's going to happen to you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. And he treated Abram well for her sake. Abram was treated well. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Just like he predicted, he would be treated well for her sake. But what happened to her? And God had promised Abram land, and Abram gets into the land, and it's got famine. So they flee the land. God had promised Abram descendants, but to keep his own life, he sells, well, he, he gives his wife to a harem. How she may have descendants, but he's not going to have descendants. God promised Abram that he would be a blessing to the nations. But what happens to the nations? The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now, now here, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. The promises of God come to Abraham. And there's progress. He leaves and he goes and he ends up in Canaan. But as soon as he gets to Canaan, there's a famine. And the famine threatens the promise of land. He goes to Egypt and he gives away his wife, which threatens the promise of descendants. And it brings a curse down on the nations, which threatens the promise of blessing to the nations. This is narrative. Now, the author's telling you a story. It's not like a college textbook where you just say, okay, here's the point. But he, he puts the two ideas side by side to make the point. It, he designs his narrative so you can, can't miss the point. What's the point? The promises of God. God offers his promises. And yet those promises face obstacles. Why? Do you remember Genesis 1 to 3? God is sovereign and benevolent. Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, the world has fallen. And that that theme, the bifurcation of nature, will go out throughout all of Scripture. This is what it looks like for God to bless his people in a fallen world. What it looks like is God takes benevolent, sovereign initiative. And what it looks like is this fallen world presents all manner of obstacles. Abraham is a fallen man living in the midst of a fallen world. And so you've got the work, you've got the blessing of God, you've got the grace of God at work, and you've got the obstacles posed by the fall, posed by sin. Genesis 12 just sets it up here. It's going to be a while before Abram gets the first son. By the end of Genesis, he'll have only 70 descendants and one small piece of land. It's going to take the whole Old Testament to get Abraham, innumerable descendants and land. And never will he be a blessing to the nations. This is what it's like in our world when God's at work. He is at work. He is powerful. He is benevolent. But it's a fallen, broken world with fallen, broken people. And we're among those fallen, broken people like Abraham is. 
And so sometimes we help the work of God, and sometimes we really set the work of God back. But here's the message, even already anticipated in Genesis 12. Despite these obstacles, despite the fallenness of the world, despite the fallenness of God's people, God's work, God's purpose will be accomplished. It's going to take a long time, but it will be accomplished. Now, what does that say to us? This is really important to set out for the next nine months. You've really got to get a hold on this one. So if you've drifted off in the meantime, come back here for a minute. We want Scripture to speak to our lives. We want Scripture to speak to, you know, my I got exams coming up and I'm in a panic. I like this girl. She doesn't maybe like me or I don't know. We want Scripture to We want God to speak to, oh, this is a college I'm, I want to get into. Or I just started. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, you know, uh, we want, you know, I've got, I got a kid and I'm, I'm just can't get any sleep at night. My life is hard, you know, uh, or a job, you know, uh, yeah, my boss is a nuisance, my colleagues are idiots, and I'm the only competent one there. We want life to speak to whatever we're dealing with. Here's the thing. Scripture will address that secondarily, but that's not what God's intention is. God's intention is to take us from that to something else. You notice how we pray, right? How I pray, how you pray? Father, you know, here's... My parent, family situation, we pray be with us. Here's my situation, I pray that you'll be with us. And when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? Our Lord, who art in heaven, may your name be honored and glorified. May your kingdom come on this earth. So God has taken us, understands where we are, but God's taken us from where we are to, to where he wants us to be. And God's taken us, you know, we take God and try and get him on our agenda, and God's saying, well, no, 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 no. You come on to my agenda. God made three promises to Abraham. And there's only one of those promises that was never yet fulfilled. That Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. We are in phase three of what God is doing. God's purposes throughout all of time, throughout all of our world, we're in phase three. We're no longer promised that we'll have children if we want them. And that they'll be as smart as we want. Or as cooperative as we'd like. We're no longer promised children. We're no longer promised that we'll own a home or land. That's done. Now, God's purposes are in the third phase. God wants to reach the world. The world surrounding us here, and especially the world where the gospel hasn't been reached. And God's inviting us to be part of that. And over the course of nine months, you'll have nine months to figure this out, but over the course of nine months, none of these sermons will have much central impact on your life unless you can figure out this. So pray about this. Everyday prayer about this. And some of you already know. But if you don't know yet, pray about this. Because otherwise, none of this stuff is going to apply to you at the primary level, only at the secondary. Here's the, pre- here's the primary question that we want to ask God. God, what are you calling me to do with my life that's going to serve your purpose in reaching the nations? For some of us, it'll be local. For some of us, it'll be at work. You know, it's not going to be cross-cultural or overseas. But God, what are you calling me to do to f- serve your purpose? Because only as we know that will we be able to apply the direct point, the primary point of this text to our lives. But let's assume now you have some idea of what God's purpose is for your life. Let me show you how this passage illustrates or or, or speaks to that. What does this passage say to you if you know God's purpose for your life? 
What did this passage say to Abraham? It says the same thing to you. God's called you. Abraham, God says to Abraham, come, leave your homeland, go here. Join my purposes. And God may not call us to go, to change our location, but God calls us to join his purposes. And the question is whether we will do what Abraham did. God said, come, follow me. And, and Abraham went, followed him. Jesus says, come, follow me. And the disciples followed him. The, the first question is, will we go? God's blessing. He promises to use us. Will we join him? Will we join his mission? But then the, the second half of this passage tells us something else. If we do join his mission, if we hear what God has to call us to, and we go, what will our lives be like? There'll be lives of blessing, first paragraph. What also will they be? There will be lives of challenge. God's work faces obstacles. There was famine in the land. There was a big bad king. There was a cowardly man of God that threatened the promise of famine, that threatened the the promise of land that threatened the promise of blessing, that threatened the promises, all the promises were threatened. And yet the work of God succeeded. God's word to us really is this. If we join his purposes, he will bless. But that blessing will not guarantee us an easy life, a successful life, quick dramatic success in how we serve him. The promise of this passage is only this, that God will use our efforts. And in the end, and it may be a long time coming, but in the end, we will may have made a contribution that restores his sovereignty over this whole world. That's what this passage promises, that God has a role for us to play that we will face obstacles even as we serve him godly way in that role. But that in the end, he will succeed. And we will have the pleasure of knowing that we had a part in the work of God and in the honoring of God. Let's pray together. Father, may this be true not just in Scripture, not just in the life of Abraham, but it may be, maybe it be true also in our lives. Guide us as we ask, what are you inviting us to do? How might we fit into your mission? And then work through us, Father, in your time, in your way, despite our fallenness. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.